Welcome to Stone Age Meeples, the Doof Media show where we look at how folks have been having fun throughout history. I'm Ruben Morehouse. I'm Elliot Diebold. And this is one of our pilot season episodes where we're trying out pilots for a variety of new shows. What is Stone Age Meeples, Elliot? Well, it's a look at ancient board games, the cultures that created and inspired them, and a bit of a look at rules and strategy. It kind of takes two of the most nerdiest and most boring things ever, which are board games and history, and smushes them together into a podcast. Just just what the world was craving for. Exactly. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm not going to lie. I had so much fun putting this episode together, and I hope <laughs> that everyone else has as much fun listening to it, because I feel like there's a bunch of fascinating stuff to talk about today. Yeah, it's basically a trip down a bunch of fun facts loosely related to board games in ancient (laughs) Egypt, this episode. Yeah, pretty much. Because we're looking at the ancient Egyptian game of Senet. Yes, that is sort of the how it is currently pronounced version of of the name of of this game. Well, so here's here's your first fun fact of the episode, folks. Hieroglyphs, Egyptian hieroglyphs, do not have vowels. So it's a language without vowels, and so we kind of have to guess how... Words like this would be spelt. We know it's S, you know, apostrophe N, apostrophe T. And uh, people call it Sinet or Sinat or also Zinat. Um, yeah, all I mean, kind of valid interpretations. I mean, that's the thing. Like hieroglyphs, not only is it like a, a language, um, for lack of a better word, that was used for like over 3,000 years. Um, so it would have evolved. But like, you know, it doesn't map yes. directly onto like, you know, modern Roman English letters. So... Sinet is sort of the one that everyone has agreed to go with as a pronunciation of the game. Yeah, that's going to be a recurring theme, actually, for our discussion of Sinet, because a lot of these uh, things about how the game worked and what all the things meant and what everything was called, it's all kind of patched together from different, you know, hieroglyph sources. And so Mm. there's a lot of discussion about different interpretations of things that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Sinet roughly translates to mean the game of passing, and it's this board game that was played in uh, ancient Egypt and uh, became kind of synonymous with a lot of religious iconography around the journey to the afterlife. And I think everyone who learns about Egypt in their you know year five history class learns about Egyptian afterlife and death rituals, and, and a lot of that is going to tie into what we're talking about with Sinet. Okay. Uh, um, so in the game... Pieces travel along a board of 30 squares, and basically it mirrors the journey through the afterlife to get into the Egyptian paradise, the Egyptian heaven. Um, yeah. it's, it's actually one of the oldest known board games. It's over 5,000 years old, uh, dates back to ancient Egypt, and references to it can be found in burial sites as far back as 3,100 BC. So we're talking old, old school. I think it's one of yeah. the oldest known board games that still is played uh, in some forms today. Yeah, that like that's insanely old. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy, and and this is the point where you know re- these references, these depictions are in like burial sites of of kings and royalty, and so presumably this game would have originated with not royalty and made its way. So obviously it would have existed for longer than we know it to have existed because it had to take some time to to get up the chain, as it were. Um, yeah, but I think like I I think I saw one thing is like Tutankhamun was buried with four for i don't know what kits of, of Sinet. yeah and and huge ones so yeah you know depending on your class obviously ancient egypt was a class-based society and depending on your class you would have either like kind of simple bone or wooden Sinet boards all the way up to these like massive room-sized things if you're a pharaoh um it's crazy uh, so obviously you can't see this in the audio medium but 
uh, we've we've you and I, Elliot, have seen a bunch of pictures of uh, carvings on tombs in tombs of hieroglyphs of you know uh, pharaohs playing sonnet, and it's the craziest thing to look at. Because it kind of looks like they're playing chess and it yeah, feels so yeah. weird and like <laughs> out of date to have these pictures of, you know, next to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs and, and ancient Egyptian depictions of pharaohs. They're just kind of playing sonnet. There's a, the picture I'm looking at here is Nefertiti, of a pharaoh playing sonnet. And it's crazy. It just looks like she's playing a board game. It's so like <laughs> relatable. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I mean, you know, that must mean it's some sort of a big deal. I don't know how extensive all these hieroglyphs are, but like for sonnet to have made it on the wall like you know it must have been pretty common and and yes somewhat significant yes so from what historians are able to tell it was a very very common game um so you know you mentioned Tutankhamun's tomb having this like table-sized board and workers you know uh lower down the rung would be buried with sinet boards as well because it did take on uh this religious and and uh afterlife kind of level significance uh, to the extent that um this set of carvings called the Book of the Dead, which is where we get a lot of our understanding about Egyptian afterlife rituals. Uh, from. Of course, like was crucial to the plot of the Mummy films. <laughs> yes, of course, what it's mainly known for from yep. the Mummy. Yes, um, it it contains depictions of people playing sonnet. Like this is very. It became very heavily baked into afterlife culture. Um, yeah, and, and of course, as we get into some of the rules and stuff a bit later. Um, I mean, it'll become obvious why it was so, you know, tightly tied to that. Yeah, I think it actually didn't start out being tied to... It started out as a secular game, or possibly historians think maybe a calendar, um, because there are 30 squares that you play on, which, you know, could be analogous to the 30 days in a month, right? And then kind of Mm. evolves over time into a game, and then from there takes on uh, religious significance. Um, Leading theories by historians are that since this game was so common people just like didn't write down the rules because everyone just knew how to play it um Mm. which means that while we're able to intuit how to play from like the board and pieces and depictions we actually aren't 100 percent sure and we've kind of we'll we'll talk about some of the different interpretations of the rules and what that means in a bit as well yeah yeah um yeah but eventually this game got to this point where it was thought that if you played it before you died um it would basically and you won (laughs) i should say it would help guarantee you entry into paradise as opposed to the other thing that would happen if you didn't get into paradise in egyptian afterlife mythology which is basically you would be expunged you would be like not sent to hell but like erased and become you know nothing Um, yeah yeah. which is bad obviously (laughs) um (laughs) i mean it's it's less good than paradise yes of course well actually this is another thing i found interesting while i was researching this is um a lot of historians kind of call egypt a very content culture because their idea of paradise was basically you got to live the way that you lived in your actual life, but forever. And so this, and this was seen as a paradise to them. So it's the idea of your normal life is actually good enough that you're just kind of happy with it and you'd be happy, you know, being reunited with the people that you love, but also just basically having a similar life. So it's not as paradisical as you would normally think of. Um, Interesting. I guess that explains why they're able to you know, more or less be a similar society for, like, you know, there were different, like, dynasties and kingdoms and stuff yeah. in, in ancient Egypt, but it was fairly similar for about 3,000 years. Well, so, yeah, presumably they're content, and yeah. so they're you're just happy to, to be an Egyptian, I guess. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this game kind of took this place of playing the game would help get your position in the afterlife, and then also there was a lot of thoughts about, like, 
if you died, you would possibly play it against, you know, an unknown entity. And, and you'll actually notice if you look up depictions in the Book of the Dead and stuff, often these people are, aren't playing against someone else. They're playing against someone that's kind of off screen or out of frame of the carvings because they, this was the representation of like death or, or something analogous to death. And so if you played a game against death, I guess, and won, this would also, you know, guarantee you a peaceful and, and happy eternity. So a sort of grim reaper situation, is that what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, like a, playing a game against the devil. It's it's very right, similar. Yeah. Um, and I was actually surprised to find that, which is such a, like, I think of as such a, like, modern uh, trapping of kind of afterlife imagery, right? You play a game against the devil, and if you win, you get your soul or whatever, right? But yeah, no, this yeah. was something that existed at least as far back as ancient <laughs> Egypt times, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about how it's played, I think. And from there, we'll kind of bounce off into some of the afterlife ritual stuff that we have to talk about. Yeah. Um, so obviously we're not going to like read out the whole manual or whatever, because first of all, <laughs> yes. it doesn't quite exist. Um, no. but second, I don't think that would make good audio. Um, yes, definitely. so, so Ruben and I have played some games. So what we're going to sort of do here is talk about some of the, the big picture rule stuff. So you get a basic idea for how it works and then we'll start to talk about, um, like how we think it's designed and how, how it's built. Yeah, um, totally. So I, I guess the, the best comparison I can think of that, that most people would probably know is back, backgammon. Hmm. Um, basically you start with five pieces each, uh, and they're arranged on the first 10 spaces. One person's on all the odd numbers, one's on all the even numbers. Um, and then basically each turn you either move one of your pieces forward or back with the idea that you've got to get them off the end of the board. So off space 30. Yeah. It's, it's a type of game called a race game. And you'd, you'd probably be familiar with like snakes and ladders. If you're not a big board game player where you're basically just trying to get your piece to the end of the board um except in mm. this it's five pieces instead of one yes uh and so one of the first fun things we get into here is uh there's no dice so instead no. of rolling a dice you actually roll four sticks and the yes. sticks have two sides there's a light side and a dark side yeah and depending on how many light sides you have face up that's how far you go so if you roll one light side face up you can move a piece one space two is two spaces three is three spaces four is four spaces and interestingly um you can also roll zero light sides, which lets you move a, one of your pieces five spaces. And the reason that I think this is so interesting is because this game kind of predates the concept of a zero, which means that they didn't have a, <laughs> a concept for rolling zero. So instead, it just kind of they had it like loop around to the idea of a five instead. Yeah. Which is so wild to me. Yeah. Like, and it was so interesting. I did a bunch of reading up on this. Um, so like... It's so interesting. The concept of zero, there's actually like multiple levels of like getting a concept of zero that societies sort of go through. Yes. Um. So like ancient Egyptians, they actually sort of had a base 10 numbering system, but they got around sort of needing zeros like we'd need in a 10 or a 100 um, by just having like symbols for 100 and a symbol for 10. So yeah. you just have like the symbol for a hundred and then the symbol for like three tens and so to have 130. Yeah. Um, and one of the first things most societies starting start to do, and this is eventually what e Egypt started to do is you fill that space in with, with a blank space. So, you know, instead of a zero, like we do, you just have one space one to be 101. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, you start to actually use zero as the concept of, nothing um but what's really interesting is the first evidence of that being done in egypt 
uh, comes from like an accounting spreadsheet that they found. Uh, <laughs> spreadsheet, <laughs> a Google sheet. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's from around 1800 BC, so that's like actually sort of right smack bang in the middle of when Sinet, you know, its yeah. arc as as an Egyptian thing, because Sinet kind of went till about um, I think it was like two AD or something. Was yeah. was, was about when they reckon it phased out. Um, and, and it was obviously 3,000 years back. So right sort of in the middle, Egypt invented zeros. And I, I thought it was really fun that they actually use the symbol for completeness or, or for beauty as their symbol mm. for zero. Um, and, and if you think about it from the context of like rounding out spreadsheets uh, or, you know, accounting balancing, it was this idea of when your, um, you know, you red numbers equal your black numbers, you sort of yeah. get this perfect complete zero. There you go. That's so nice. I, yeah. I, I've never thought about it in that accounting sense of like balancing your credits and your debits to equal zero is actually quite a beautiful thing. <laughs> but yeah, I can um, see it. But yeah, so obviously, so so Egypt sort of went through this this process a couple of thousand years later, but Sinet sort of predates it. So the idea of the, fa- the, the four black sides, I guess, just got converted to extra stuff because there wasn't as much of a concept of nothing, which is yeah. so bizarre to think of. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I always found that. You know, you hear about like, well, they didn't have zero back then. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? But actually finding out more about it, it's it's a very fascinating way of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, these sticks that you roll are kind of, um, they're kind of prototypical dice, right? It's, it's like rolling dice before dice really existed. And actually, one of the things that uh, you found out when we were researching this was they actually did have D20s in ancient Egypt, which I found adorable yes although that that d20 was from like 320 bc so that's you know a that's whole well three thousand years yeah. after uh Sinet started so you know hu- huge gap there yeah so this game does seem to as far as we can tell predate the idea of dice as well yep yep um yeah and so the other thing that happens when you roll is if you roll some of the rarer rolls a one a four or a five you get another turn as well yeah, so I think this is really interesting. So because it's it's four sticks, basically, your chances of getting a four or a five are like one in 16. And then your chances of getting a, a one or a three are, are one in four. Yeah, it's actually and, not that uncommon to get a one. No, but that's the interesting thing because it's, it's the same likelihood. So you're just as likely to get a one as you are to get a three. Yeah. And yet one gets you the extra turn and three doesn't. And if, I, I, I thought that was interesting when we played because there were more times I was begging for a one despite the extra turn it would get me than I was after a three. Like mm-hmm. I would I would have actually argued that a one is often, maybe it's just the way I play, but mm-hmm. I, I thought the one was actually the better number to receive anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it I think early on the higher numbers really win you the game, but then later on you basically have to get the right sequence of numbers. And so mm-hmm. rather than rolling a three, you're much better off with like a one than a two uh, right. rather than getting a three on, on its face because that lets you do more kind of tricky little manoeuvres. Um, let, let's talk about the end of the board because most of the squares don't have any special effects, but as you get towards the end of the board, uh, the, the kind of symbolism of the Egyptian journey into the afterlife becomes a lot more on the surface. Uh, so you get to these what are called houses. Um, so I think square 26 is the beautiful house which starts your kind of final journey into the afterlife um the beautiful house being a nickname by the way for the mummification chamber or like funeral (laughs) parlor so it's really on the nose about that um 
Then you get to the House of Water, which is, uh, we'll talk about the symbolism of that a bit later, but it's basically a trap. And if you fall into it, it's bad for your gameplay. <laughs> yep. Uh, I and lost, then you get I to lost the, the game thanks to that stupid space. Yes, that is, it's rough. Um, and then you get to the House of Three Judges, the House of Two Judges, and the House of Horus. Um, and these houses all kind of have special conditions for landing on them and then moving off of them. Uh, if you're on the House of Three Judges, you can use a three to move a piece off. House of Two Judges, you can move use a two to move a piece off. And the House of Horus, you can use any number to move a piece off. Once they've moved off, they pass on, you know, into the afterlife and are removed from play. And the first player who has all their pieces move on wins. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Like, basically, the build-up of this game is the first, you know, you start covering, you start with your pieces covering the first 10 positions yeah and then it's kind of just nothingness and just you know taking turns swapping stuff and until you start to reach that house 26 thing and that's just when the game gets very i think that's where the tactics really started to come into it as well mm. as the luck if that makes sense mm. it was like yeah i both felt like my decisions as well as my luck were both more important at that point well, and, and we, we can yeah. maybe talk more about that later but this is where like there's so many more conditions and things to think about about where every one of your pieces ends up. Yeah, I'd say the game kind of feels like it's played in three phases. And the reason for that is there's two rules that I haven't mentioned yet. Um, one is that if you move your piece onto an opponent's piece that's by itself, you swap positions. So you don't only move your piece forward, but you move their piece backwards, which is mm -hmm. potentially devastating. Um, and the other rule is if you have pieces standing next to each other, so two or more pieces standing next to each other, they are protected, which means they can't be swapped and your opponent can't move onto them. Yeah. And so we get to this point where I feel like the game is in three phases, where the first phase is all the pieces are really close to each other and really messy and you don't have a lot of movement that you can actually do. And then around the middle of the game, it, it really opens up as all the pieces start to spread out and you get to this point where it becomes all about making these kind of strategic swaps because if you swap with your opponent you gain a bit of an edge and as that compounds you get out in front and that really helps you have a better chance at winning and then we get to this final phase where the pieces are starting to move off the board and one swaps become a lot more punishing because you can potentially swap people into the house of water and really <laughs> punish them but also it becomes a lot more luck based because you'll get a piece on something like the house of three judges and you'll really be holding out for a three to get yourself off the board and pass that piece on. So it kind yeah. of moves through these three phases of, of quite interesting and different types of gameplay, which I think really helps keep it fresh throughout the course of a, you know, 20 to 30 minute game. Yeah, I, I was about to say, I think you're spot on with that sort of three phase breakdown. And I agree, that really felt like it kept things moving. Like we, we played three games together a couple of days ago and at the end of each one, I was just immediately ready to do another one and, yes, and you sort of have to reset yourself. It's really, it like we had three games that all felt close and I oh, think yeah. it is quite a balanced game in that sense, even though it's got some randomness towards it, especially at the end, it, it feels like you're never truly out of the game. Like one good sequence mm. of, you know, a one and a five and then a three or something. And you're really like back in it yeah, uh, to a yeah, high absolutely. extent. Um, I, I think, I think it's, it's interesting like to look at your three phase structure. I definitely feel like I felt like the middle phase was the most important and probably also mm. the longest. Mm. Um, but it's like, it, it, it's quite luck based as to where you, what, how good your position is after that early phase. Like mm. I think we had that one game 
where I got very lucky in, in my first few roles and I just yeah. ended up in a very strong position that I mostly managed to maintain uh, as we moved towards the middle. Whereas the middle is really your opportunity to start making very strategic plays. Yes, definitely. And, and then the really ending is up- the one that feels yeah. more important. But I think I think I was wrong before. I think it is the one that's the most luck-based and, and there is still strategy to it, but it's like, that's just kind of where everything's coming together you're down to a few pieces and it's really yeah you know the the high stakes but it's probably you know your position and that end game is all coming from how well you've placed yourself in the middle phase yes totally it, it is luck based but doing well in the first two phases gives you more chances to roll the right things you know so it's like yep. you're you're building yourself up a base a buffer of luck that you then kind of spend as you get into the final phase yeah it's yeah. a fascinating game um yeah i I, I found it a lot more fun than I was expecting. Yeah, same, right? like, same. I kind of had this picture of ancient board games, like even not ancient, but like old board games like Monopoly. You're kind of like, I mean, yeah, it's fine, but it's not really fun compared to like modern Euro, you know, uh, revival games. Yeah. Um, even, some I, of the, even some of the classic board games, like you look at Backgammon and it's just got some problems with it i think yeah um, it just the, doesn't the, feel elegantly designed you know yeah exactly like, like there's just some fine. quirks to them and this one has that but I, I still was surprised at how much i enjoyed it like could i play yeah. it two hours a day for a year P- probably not but like mm. you know is it good for a couple of couple of sessions with some friends like i think absolutely yeah genuinely i i i expected myself to put it into this category of like i don't know yeah like backgammon where it's like yeah it's fine but it's old and you can feel that it's old Whereas this yeah. game, it really felt like it had some really interesting mechanics to like balance itself out. Like, you know, as pieces, as you, as one player starts to win, it becomes a lot harder for them to move their pieces. And so they will have to accidentally or kind of accidentally force themselves into making bad moves. And that yeah. is easily able to be punished and easily lets the other player kind of catch up to them. And so it reminds it has me these... a bit of um, it reminds mm. me a bit of billiards, like with that sort of self-correcting measure. Mm. Like in, you know, in billiards, if one person pulls way ahead, and they've sunk six of their balls, and the other person's only sunk two, what that means is that the the person with only like a couple of balls left on the table, it's way easier to put them in a bad position, or for yeah. them just to not yeah. end up in a good position. So there's a bit of a self-correction, yeah, to to billiards, and that it lets the person catch up a little bit before they can level the playing field again. And I, yeah. I felt like that a lot. Like as one of us would start to pull ahead and get a few pieces off the board, the other person was then suddenly, you know, so much more powerful on the board because they had like twice as many pieces to work with. Yeah, it really does feel elegant in how it is played, and that kind of, you know, that I guess gives me a better understanding of just why it has it, it had lasted so long through egypt like it, it's game was played for thousands of years right like yeah and i can see that in the elegance of its design and the fact that even though our games you know even we played three games and they all felt quite different like they all felt like they yeah. had these different emergent strategies for us to try out which i thought was yeah like surprisingly really really entertaining yeah yeah i completely agree um so do you want to talk a bit about like uh, the the rules and how they sort of put them together because yeah. i found this fascinating yeah totally um so as you sort of mentioned already like uh the game was just so common in egypt that th- they didn't actually find that much written about it anywhere um it's also like 
writing and being able to read was a bit of a luxury in Egypt. As you mentioned, it's like a classist society and it was mm. really only the upper echelons who did much reading and writing, like priests and stuff. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we haven't found like a complete manual and we assume that's because most people were just teaching each other by word of mouth. Um, there are various snippets that have been found, you know, in, in all sorts of places, uh, like hints of rules and stuff. Some of them actually <laughs> contradict each other. But again, this is a game that was played for over 3,000 years. Yeah. So the, the current assumption is that, like, you know, just the rules changed a bit over 3,000 years, um, yeah. which, which makes sense. I mean, people have added house rules to, like, Uno in the last 100. So um, <laughs> It needs yeah. it, though. It's not that fun of a game, Uno. <laughs> Um, so the, there's, there's actually three competing sort of popular rule sets for Sonnet, um, which I found really interesting because when we sort of just played it before I did this research, I sort of assumed it was the one set of rules. Mm. Um, but we actually played a, a set that were the closest to the, the Jaquir rules, but they're actually a little bit different. Mm. Um, so the Jaquir rules were, they, they're generally the most popular and that's because they were probably the first big like complete rule set for the game uh another german egyptologist kind of said oh yeah i think that's correct um and also based on reading about the three of them it sounds like it's the most fun which is probably the thing that really clinched the deal for it um <laughs> yeah. in terms of becoming the widespread one yeah. um so we played that there were a few differences like in in, in the original draft for the rules that jaquir lays out uh, lays out uh four black sticks is actually a six not a five Mm. which like i think would have had some interesting implications because the difference between odd and even was usually very important um as we were playing um also like just the way it started like you actually took turns to see who went first which i don't think we did mm. um the the computer just sort of assigned them to us yeah um Jaquir also originally had, and this was something we, we talked about as we were playing, uh, a blockade mechanic, which is if you have three pieces in a row, people aren't even allowed to jump you. So we talked about how if you've got two in a row, they, they can't, can't be, land on you. They can't yeah. be stolen. In these original rules, if you have three in a row, they can't even be jumped over. So if you've got a piece right behind a set of three and you roll a five, you still can't jump over it if, if mm. there's three in a row, which is definitely, I mean, that that's very interesting. That could be very powerful. I'm I'm a little on the fence about whether I think that mechanic would have helped or not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I wonder, because obviously it is such a game about positioning, but when we were playing and we had somebody with like three or four pieces in a row, it really felt to some extent unassailable. Like you needed to roll like a five to be able to jump over it. And it, yeah. that already felt pretty low chance. I wonder if this proper blockade that is impassable would have just made that. Yeah even more problematic that's the thing i think both of us at multiple times in our session had three in a row yeah. and like once or twice one of us got over it but it was still already like it was a, already a high enough bar that i don't feel like literally making it impossible really adds much because you're you're already looking at like a 10 percent chance or something mm. yeah um and of course like that's the interesting thing because at first i was like oh i'm just going to make a blockade and keep it but Blockades are a kind of self-correcting thing because when you build yes. them, you've completely limited what you can do with the rest of your pieces. Yeah, those pieces have to move eventually. You know, yes. uh, one of the things that we haven't really mentioned is you can't pass in Sonnet. If you yep. roll on your turn, you have to move a piece. And and if, if you, you can't move a piece, yes. uh, you have to then move you actually backwards. have to move it backwards, which yes. is very fun. <laughs> which is really rough because if you roll a five and it can't go anywhere, 
you've got a piece that's got to go back five spaces, which is punishing. I think we had that happen to to us once, yeah. and it was in the end game. Yeah. It was brutal. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of ways that this game kind of has these situations where if the wrong throw happens at the wrong time, it's like the height of comedy. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so entertaining to have someone be, oh, if I roll a three, I'm, I'm going to get this piece off the board, and you roll a five, and you're just like, well, fuck, fuck me, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, um, absolutely. Especially because I, I don't know if we actually talked about that when we're talking about the special houses. So house twenty six is one that you have to land on before you're allowed yes. to move to any of the ones above it, and it is also you have to land exactly on it. So it's not one of those situations where you know if you if it's three spaces away and you roll a four, you just stop there. Yeah, your piece can't move until you get exactly like a three or or if you roll one or a two. So that's like prime opportunity to get sent backwards. Yeah, yeah. And it happened a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. So then, so then there's some other rule sets. Uh, just to quickly go back to that, there's there's a rule set called Kendall's Rules. Um, they're pretty similar to what we played, except the big difference is you actually start with seven pieces per player. Mm. Yeah, I saw um, that some variations even went up to nine pieces or ten per player, which is crazy. Yes. Well, so this is where it gets real weird because, um, and I, I actually quickly went searching to see if we could play this one as well, uh, but I couldn't find it anyway. There's a set of rules called Bell's Rules, and, and this guy's put together a set that is just the, like the complete opposite to like Kendall and Jaquir basically mostly just disagree on how many pieces you start with, but mm. apart from that, they they pretty much agree on how the game's played. Bell has it so you you start with all your pieces off the board. And you roll the sticks. And so if you get a one, two, or a three, you put a piece on the board in that position. Right. But at the end of the board? Or yes, the that's the thing. So he plays it backwards to, to how we oh. played it. So you start off the board and you're starting in those five house spaces mm. and working your way up to the top and then you're trying to jump off. Um, so you start with your 10. They're all off and you're rolling to basically put them on the board. You can't swap with players in this one as well. So if you land on their space, you don't swap with them. That that uh, that pawn gets taken off and has to like start again. Oh, it has to be respawned at yeah. one of the three houses. Yeah. Uh, and so then basically that's that's pretty much it. So what happens is when the first person reaches like the last space, that's when you enter the sort of end game. That person who got their pawn on the end space has to get their pawns on all of the um odd numbers and the next the other person's trying to get all of their pieces on all the even numbers mm. oh so yeah you're just getting it to the setup that is like the the how the other rule sets would start the game yes you're trying exactly. to end the game. it actually exactly. just is playing the other rule sets in reverse with 10 exactly it, it's it, in almost every way it's just the complete opposite of the other rules and i thought that was so <laughs> hilarious yeah and that kind of shows how little is actually known about this game yeah. if you can Take a valid interpretation of the, you know, the bits and pieces that are, of, of the rule sets that are found and get to the literal opposite of the other <laughs> historians. Well, it's this weird, it's this weird case of where I both feel like that means that they know nothing, but also they must be pretty close because they all kind of arrived at the yeah. same key points. Yeah, true. <laughs> Just like, yeah, God. It, it's, all, you know, it's that sort of thing where, you know, they've lined up five facts and one person just had them upside down, you know? Like that, that's sort of what it feels yeah, like. Yeah, you've got scraps of paper that say odd, even, odd, even, and like <laughs> houses of three, two, one. And it's yeah, like, exactly. hmm, how can I arrange this into a rough puzzle piece? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so I was bummed that I couldn't find anywhere for us to play that one because it sounds like a. F- it sounds crazy. Well, it sounds like a completely different game. To be <laughs> yeah, honest. definitely. Yeah, fascinating. Um, but, but anyway, yeah. So that's sort of like you know some of the some of the evidence for all the different sorts of rules and and how they you know how much people have struggled to put them back together after the rules were lost uh, during the fall of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, before we wrap up, I want to talk a bit more about the kind of evolution of the game over time uh, because. You know, we talked about how it became like religiously significant, um, and it's it's got a lot of references to uh, the kind of journey through the afterlife that Egyptians believed you'd get into. And I don't want to talk about Egyptian afterlife beliefs too much because, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I think everybody learned about that in Year Five history. So we all kind of <laughs> know the basics of mummification: your heart is weighed against a feather and stuff. Um, Oh, hopefully everyone knows that. Oh, that just sounds like nonsense. Uh, but I'm going to skip over that stuff and kind of talk about the evolution of the game and some of the religious iconography that, that became important to it. Um, because originally the game seemed to originate, as I mentioned, as a calendar and then as a as as a very secular game without any real religious iconography. Um, so the houses that we know as, you know, the House of Beauty and the House of uh, Water and the House of the Judges and stuff, uh, those were originally just marked <laughs> literally the squares were marked in hieroglyphics for good bad and three two one like the most generic <laughs> uh things that you could have um and eventually over time these took on more religious significance so you know good became beauty bad became this water trap um and three two one became uh, originally three birds two birds and one man and then three two one gods and then three two one judges and i think the the version we had was talking about three judges, two judges, and Horus as the one. Um, And yeah, there's, so to give a bit more detail on the Egyptian afterlife belief, it's uh, when you died, you went on this kind of spiritual journey. And at the end of this was a judgment. Um, You'd be judged on how good of a person you are. And if you were found worthy, you would get into this uh, paradise, you know, in air quotes, which really was just kind of an eternal life similar to the life you had led, but with, you know, your pets and your family that you loved who you had lost along the way. Um, If you're found unworthy, you were scrubbed from existence, just kind of entered the void, I guess. (laughs) Um, And so obviously mummification was a part of this. Mummification was a process that would help you prepare for your journey into the afterlife and and people would be buried in these lavish tombs with things that would help them in the afterlife. So uh, food that would kind of nourish your soul for its journey, Uh, things like uh, vessels that you would often have. Um, So a lot of people were buried with boats uh, because it was believed that you would need this boat to kind of travel on this journey through the afterlife. Um, And actually, I I kind of looked into this to try and find the parallels between the water trap and the boat and whether there was kind of a specifically named river a la the river Styx that you had to cross. Uh, Yeah, I was about to ask. Well, yeah, so it seems like there wasn't that's to that specific level but boat iconography was used a lot for traveling and obviously the nile was a pretty major part of the egyptian way of life you know things like bodies would be buried on one side of the nile um and one of the things that you have to uh answer for when you're judged is did you kind of treat the nile with respect did you make dams against it or not did you kind of use it when you were meant to and not overuse it stuff like that um so it's clearly a big part of life and i think that's what the water trap or the house of water kind of ties into is this idea of uh getting past the nile as this first step on your journey through the afterlife um so then the houses of the judges uh again don't have a specific parallel in egyptian afterlife mythology as far as i could tell but um 
there is this concept of judgment that is quite strong in the afterlife journey. Uh, and actually, well, the Egyptian the Egyptian mythology is where that whole thing of the balancing scales comes into yes. the, like the afterlife, right? So uh, Osiris would weigh your heart against the weight of a feather, and if your heart is heavy with sin, you are judged unworthy and expunged, I guess. Right, um, right. But there's this other part specifically where you had to recite these 42 non-confessions um, and and name 42 judges that you would recite them to. And I think this is where the concept of the judges ties in, is you would, you would kind of have this trial with these judges as you went. And so these non-confessions are you basically saying to these judges 42 different statements. So uh, I have not lied would be one of the non-confessions. You're confessing that you haven't done sins, basically. I have not murdered. I have not built a dam against the Nile or whatever. Um, okay. And, and this seems to be what's being referenced with the, the houses of judges, with the idea of these are some of the judges that you would encounter and you have to kind of make sure that you haven't sinned. And if you're found to have not sinned with the aforementioned weight of your heart versus a feather on a scale, then you're allowed into the afterlife. Um, so, yeah, it, it it does seem to have a lot of kind of religious iconography, but because it emerged as a secular game and then transitioned into a more religious game, it's it seems to not be specific references, but more just kind of vibes and parallels and iconography there. Um, All right. I wonder how important that was for the longevity of the game. Like if you yeah. sort of you know, have, have worked your iconography and, and, and tied it to the dominant religion of the empire. Mm. Um, you know, how important that is for basically continued acceptance. Yeah. Well, I, I think the thing is uh, religion was kind of a, a tool for the upper class in a lot of ways. Like, you know, the lower class who are illiterate or even lower kind of slaves, um, religion is not something that they really encounter much in their day-to-day -day life. It's something that is kind of foisted upon them. And so games like this with religious iconography, I think that's that helps it take root amongst the upper class, uh, even to the extent of things like uh, the belief that uh, if you beat Sinet, this final square, the House of, of Horus, uh, as you get past it, it kind of symbolizes you taking a position with Ra in the eternal afterlife, who is the sun god. And so it's like this, all these religious iconography really is there to say to the upper class like hey you're playing a game but don't feel too bad about it because it's also helping you earn a better position in the afterlife whereas that probably <laughs> wasn't something that was necessarily thought about that much if you're really on the lower class yeah okay having said okay. that though a lot of worker graves were found with sonnet boards um so it, it obviously had kind of mass market appeal yeah so that's sonnet um on the whole i think it's a pretty fun game i we played it on a site called Board Game Arena, which has a lot of these uh, old games to play, and I'd really recommend trying it out if you get a chance because it, it is fun to see what game design was like <laughs> thousands and thousands of years ago. Yeah. In fact, we should we should post a link to yes. that in the Find show it. notes. We're not sponsored yet by Board Game Arena, but um, <laughs> we'll have a link in our description down there. Um, yeah, I found that the positioning of the game and this idea of blocking and capturing pieces led to a really strategic game that I, I found myself really enjoying. Yeah, I, I quite liked it's. You know, we talked about like, there was I think too much luck for you, for there mm. ever to be like a competitive sonnet yeah i think so i think so but it was definitely a good good enough balance of luck and strategy for me to get really into it for that evening and like probably like a few more you know like, yeah. like i could see myself playing more of this it's never going to take off um 
to a, to any higher level like it's not like chess or something but it, mm. it's fun enough to to play a couple of times and and just enjoy yeah definitely um yeah that's our discussion on Sinet, and i guess that brings us to the end of the pilot for stone edge meeples um as with all the pilot season episodes please leave your thoughts on this show using the form in the description because uh have your say on which pilot you want to be renewed to season Yes, and of course, the other place we're talking about all the pilots with everyone is the Doof Discord, mm-hmm. which is uh, a perk of being a Doof patron. Yes, uh, if you are a patron for one dollar a month or more, you get access to the Discord, and at the different patron levels, there are all kinds of different rewards. Uh, but the Discord is a great one; you get to talk about all of the Doof Media shows as well as all the other things you could ever want to talk about. Yes, uh, something we should talk about as well while we're talking about pilot season and everything oh, yeah. going on with it. Uh, we have just announced uh, yesterday when this comes out mm-hmm. uh, a new show that we're going to be doing called Doof on Poof, yep. uh, which is a uh, um, you know covering Walbo's new serial Poof as it's coming out. So it's a it's a bit of a sequel show to uh, Deep Impact. Yep. Um, uh, but except you don't need to have listened to yes. Deep Impact or have read Pact to follow along. Uh, yeah. Poof is in the Pact universe, but it is completely separate and standalone. So we're going to actually be doing it. Packed spoiler-free for Doof on Poof. Yeah. Uh, and so what that means for pilot season is that we're sort of... We're going to finish off pilot season. We've still got two more after mm-hmm. this one. Uh, but we're probably going to leave the decision on what we go ahead with till after Doof on Poof, which will probably yep. go for around half a year, I think. Yep, so we'll, um, we'll start sure assessing... Exactly. We'll assess which pilots we feel are good and start prepping towards the end of Doof on Poof, and then we'll... Um, start a new show when that one finishes based on the yes. pilots so yeah make sure you leave your feedback uh if you want to become a patron you can go to patreon.com forward slash doof media and um yeah our next pilot will be uh what well, do you want to talk about it elliot yes uh so we're gonna we're gonna be going back to something a little bit more traditional uh for for us anyway mm-hmm. uh next week uh we're gonna be doing Meloda air the expanse uh which is a, a pilot for an expanse show uh the expanse books by jesse Cor- james s a Corey. yep um also the popular show the expanse same name never heard of it uh i'm super excited for this one so yeah uh, you know i'm excited come to read the book and check it out with us yeah we'll be talking about uh the first eight chapters of the first book is that right uh, six or seven. I haven't yeah. fully decided yet, so that'll be a fun, <laughs> first a fun thing I'll, I'll include in the notes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so make sure you come back next week to check out that pilot. But of course, as we say at the end of every episode of Stone Age Meeples, Elliot, take it away. Ouchies, my knuckle bones. See you next time.